Welcome to the Dinner Party Download. This is your icebreaker. All right, here's a joke. What kind of cheese do you use to lure a bear out of a cave? Camembert. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano, and from APM American Public Media, this is the Dinner Party Download, the culture show that gives you an edge in your weekend conversations. You just got a joke from indie pop artist Greta Klein, aka Frankie Cosmos. Yes. That'll help break the ice. She's on tour now, and later she'll spin us some songs to listen to while wearing pajamas. Uh, we'll also speak with movie star Colin Farrell about his latest movie, The Lobster. Plus, comedian Maria Bamford channels her mother and her mother's hairdresser to answer your etiquette questions. It's three for the price of one. Hooray. And if all of that sounds familiar, that's because this is a lovingly selected rebroadcast of a show that first aired in May. Mm -hmm. So cast your mind back to a time when the sun was your friend and not an enemy, when, as at any dinner party, we started with small talk. Now for a story you might not have heard, we are speaking with Rebecca Lehrer. She is the co-host of the podcast Mashup Americans, which is about identity and culture. You should check it out. Rebecca, what story are you going to be talking about at parties this week? Well, I want to talk about luscious locks. Mm. You've come to the right place. Yes, I know. There's a lot of good hair um, at Dinner Party Download. <laughs> oh, hell yeah. <laughs> but specifically, we're going to talk about Thomas Jefferson's hair, which just sold at auction. Mm. Did he have hair? I thought they all just had wigs <laughs> back then. Underneath. Oh. Uh, yeah, yeah. His hair just sold 190 years after his death for over $6,800. I guess that's impressive. That actually seems like a bargain for Thomas Jefferson's hair. Right? Because John Lennon's hair sold for $35,000. Oh <laughs> yeah. How do you display hair after you buy it without looking that like a disgusting slob? That is such a good question. <laughs> I have so many questions about why do you want this? Is this extremely creepy? You, I, I think you display it in your shower drain, actually. <laughs> <laughs> That's so gross. There was there was also, you know, a few several years ago, like 20 years ago, Beethoven's hair got sold. Mm. They did all this testing on it, and that's how they discovered later that he had lead poisoning, and that's part of why he was deaf. Oh, Maybe we're going to learn something about Thomas Jefferson, like what made him a great architect. And, and like French wine. <laughs> yeah. And introduce Chicken Alley King to America. And maybe be a little racist. <laughs> <laughs> That's, yeah, we'll figure it. It's all going to come to a head. Oh, wow. Yes. <laughs> Rebecca Lair, thank you so much for the small talk. You are welcome. And now time for cocktails. This is the part of the show where we tell you something that happened in history, then have a bartender capture its essence in cocktail form. It's like history is a mighty oak watered with a thunderstorm of booze. Mm. Dramatic. First, the history part. Around this time back in 1987, New Jersey enacted a law requiring trash recycling. But what's really conversation-worthy is why. Michelle Philippi tells the tale. Next time you recycle, thank the Mobro 4000. No, it's not some kind of robot. It was a barge. And in March 1987, it set sail from New York State, loaded with over 3,000 tons of rotting municipal garbage. The plan was to float the Mobro to North Carolina and drop the trash there. But when it arrived, protesters did too. Some worried the garbage contained hazardous waste. Others said North Carolina had plenty of garbage of its own to deal with. Suddenly, the Mobro was a political hot potato. Politicians told it to shove off. 
so began a six-month journey. With news cameras watching, the increasingly stinky barge floated over to Louisiana, then Florida. No takers. And when a rumor spread the Mobro might head to Mexico, Mexico sent out the Navy to make sure it didn't. The Gar Barge became a symbol of overconsumption and of America's supposedly dwindling landfill space. It was a big reason some states started mandatory recycling. Meanwhile, the Mobro wound up right back where it started, New York City, where the trash was burned. So that was the history. Now for the drink. On the line is Amir Rivera. He is a bartender at Mahogany in Belize, another country that refused the gar barge. Amir, what cocktail did that story inspire you to make? I made one called Better No Litter. Or in Creole, one of the languages in Belize, better no litter. Better not litter. It's a drink and a warning. Yeah. Uh, I'm I'm assuming that there's not actual litter in this drink. No, no, not at all. <laughs> it it involves a rum called um, one barrel. One barrel rum. Okay. Yeah, dark rum. Like like the dark sea, perhaps. Yeah, and you add like an ounce of coconut rum, a little bit of a uh, creme de banana. Okay, so very tropical. Yeah. And to take up the sweetness a little bit, add in some cranberry. It's a little bit sour. And where's the where's the garbage part? Okay, so you chop up pineapple with the skin, like in little chunks, and you just throw it in the cocktail. So it, it'll be like um. <laughs> so you put in the like the rind of the pineapple into yeah. it, kind of like f- floating trash. Yeah, yeah, like trash floating in the dark sea. Exactly. I like it, but you're not really keeping with the theme because this actually sounds like something someone might want to drink. They won't reject it like the barge. Yeah, so you you needed something that someone wouldn't want to drink. <laughs> you're right. We'll stick with this. Okay. All right, and Brendan, I think I know how New York could have turned the gar barge into a financial win. Okay, America wants to know. Good. Tell us. So you charge budget travelers like 100 bucks each to climb aboard the Mobro 3000. Ah. <laughs> they get the cheapest cruise to Belize ever. Uh-huh. Almost to Belize. Not quite. The, the journey's what matters, Brendan. Mm. Uh, you make revenue, everyone's happy. I guess I have had worse travel experiences. Sure you have. I think about it. It's a deal. Uh, but people, there's no garbage on our website. Nope. And if you go there, you'll find that recipe and more at dinnerpartydownload.org. And now the soundtrack in which a great musician DJs your dinner party. And today it's Greta Klein, the woman behind the indie pop project Frankie Cosmos. Most of the songs on her latest album, Next Thing, are under two minutes long but they're packed with dreamy vocals and lyrics that Pitchfork says can, quote, puncture your heart in the span of a sentence. Here's Greta with a slumber party playlist. Hi, this is Greta from Frankie Cosmos, and here's my dinner party soundtrack. The first song that I would play is called Pull the Pin by Anna McClellan. I think it would be good to start the party because the first line is, God, I am so hungry waiting for my food. My God, I am so hungry, waiting for my food, staring out the window, straight directly at the moon. I just came back from a tour that we did where Anna opened for two weeks playing solo. She plays piano, and uh, I really look up to the way that she sings. Her voice is super bouncy and strong. It's like a rubber ball. Some of her piano parts are really silly, and then it becomes like really loud and kind of intense. 
Sometimes it feels like a musical. It's really beautiful, and it makes me feel like a dork. <laughs> I think the party would be happening at my parents' house because my parents' house is like very comfortable and I always joke that there's ambient like coming through the vents just like trying to put me to sleep. So I think my dinner party might also be a slumber party. Stuffed animals, you know, puzzles, really tame. And I want it to be all women. I'm sleeping in the girls' room. I'm sleeping in the girls' room. I'm sleeping in the sky, I'm sleeping in the water. So my next song that I would play is Girls' Room by Liz Fair. My mom just loved Liz Fair, and every time I was ever in a car with my mom, we would listen to this. Here comes Tiffany, my best friend Tiffany, wearing a size too small a sweater. To me, it feels like it's a song about being a younger kid at an older sister, older female friends, like slumber party, you know, feeling part of it and feeling welcomed and, and also looking at the situation and probably overthinking it is what I would be doing at the party. We hear Terry say that Trish is okay, but she ought to learn to shave her bikini line better. And Torin was born like her mother in a storm. And Tracy's been away forever. My third song is Oppressor by Krill. They have always been a three-piece. I think Oppressor has one of my favorite bass solos ever. like a dueling almost bass and guitar solo that's just like the most unreal thing like I've heard the song a million times and every time it's still exciting it's like more interesting more stuff unfolds I'm definitely poking fun at my guests because I'm taking away the fun time that we're having and just reminding them of all the bad things in the world and calling everybody there an oppressor if they're having fun. I generally wouldn't, you know, perform live at my own dinner party, but I, I probably would feel really comfortable at this party and maybe I'd be able to play my song called Be Normal Frankie. It's a song that I wrote about feeling like you have to conform to fit into a party setting. So I think it's a good song to remind myself, like, this is a really good party and I don't feel peer pressure and I don't have to keep it cool. I hate that. Be normal, be normal. That's what we said to me. Be normal, be normal. That's what we said to me. 
train. I find the warm spot. It's a room, not a body part. A dinner party soundtrack from Greta Klein, aka Frankie Cosmos. Her album Next Thing is out now, and she's currently on tour. All right, we're going to take a break, but coming up, actor Colin Farrell, punk rocker John Doe, comedian Maria Bamford, and her mom when the dinner party download continues. Welcome back to the Dinner Party Download, the arts and leisure section of public radio. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano. We should let you know this is an encore broadcast of a show we first aired in May. It's a great one. In a few minutes, writer and activist Lindy West will make sure you never think about Miss Piggy the same way again. Mm-mm. But first, let's meet our guest of honor. All right. And this week, it's Colin Farrell. He's starred in films from some of the world's great directors, including Steven Spielberg's Minority Report and Terrence Malick's The New World. And he won a Golden Globe for playing a thick-headed hitman in the indie classic In Bruges. Colin's latest film is the dark, absurd comedy The Lobster from filmmaker-slash-provocateur Yorgos Lanthimos. Last year it won the jury prize at Cannes. And it's about a dystopic world in which single people are forced to live together in a hotel and find a mate within 45 days or else they are turned into an animal of their choosing and released into the wild. It is not a date movie, ladies and gentlemen. That is correct. In this scene, Colin's character David has just told the hotel's manager which animal he'd like to become. Why a lobster? Because lobsters live for over 100 years, are blue-blooded like aristocrats, and stay fertile all their lives. I also like to see very much. I water ski and swim quite well since I was a teenager. I must congratulate you. The first thing most people think of is a dog, which is why the world is full of dogs. When I spoke to Colin, I asked what he thought when he first read the script. Yeah, that the the writers of it, both Yorgos, who directed the film, and his writing partner, Ephthemus, Philip, probably need um, incredible therapeutic support <laughs> um, because it was just so twisted and so absurd and then I found it ultimately very moving and this kind of bizarre sweetness was pervasive through the whole script or not through the whole script but certainly towards the end when Rachel Weisz's character comes into the film. Did you have any idea what you were in for? Had you had any experience with their previous work? I had seen Dogtooth so I got a call from my agent saying look there's a, a film that's being directed by a director who who made a film four or five years ago called Dogtooth and I, I had as soon as my agent said Dogtooth I thought oh my god that film because myself <laughs> and my sister had, had caught it in a on a quiet weekday night in a theatre in Philadelphia and we came out and I remember being in the car park with my sister going, what was that we just saw? (laughs) What just happened? It was so brilliant and so disturbing and so meticulous in how it was shot and the performances, the tone of the performances and the tone of the whole film. And so when I heard that it was that same filmmaker that was doing his first English language film, I was very excited to read the script. And, and as I said, I read it and I, I, I loved it. But on the flip side of that, I can imagine, because you're right, it's a very specific and unusual kind of direction that he does. It's very deadpan. There are lines that you and the other characters deliver that should be angry or sad or romantic or fraught. Sure. And they're all read in almost the same kind of flat tone. Mm-hmm. I can imagine that, you know, getting offered a part from that director also might be a little frightening. Yeah, I wasn't sure. I was kind of just going, how is this brought to life? How do any actors get in there and say these words and be in these situations and, and kind of be grounded within them? Yeah. But I think as little as you can taint the dialogue with conventional 
emotional, naturalistic responses, then the more you allow the film to live and inhabit the world mm-hmm. of absurdity that was the intention. Well, let's speak, let's talk about this world of absurdity because as absurd as it is, yeah. it's speaking to things in reality. And in fact, when he accepted the special jury prize for this film, he thanked you and the cast who he said, this is a quote, understood the text which was very difficult to grasp. So what to you is this film about? It, it is pretty I clear. still have no idea. He was speaking out of turn there because I have no idea what this film's about. Really? Um, what is it about? I mean, something a lot of critics have supposed is that it's a critique of modern online dating. Yeah. Where you have these mathematical algorithms that are supposedly pairing you up with the perfect mate. Yeah. I mean, I think as human beings, our quest and our journey to try and find a mate to share our lives with is constantly changing and there are opportunities that are presented to us as you said through social media and through da- online dating and so on and so forth and and I think everything is worth exploring you know I, I, I don't know that there's any more truth in a man and a woman or a man and a man meeting in a bar you know six drinks in at two o'clock in the morning on a Friday night more than having introduced yourself to them on, online I don't know I know it's easy to stigmatise that but I think it's, you know, it, it asks questions, this film, possibly about freedom, about the nature of desperation and needing to believe that which somebody else tells you is a right or wrong way to live your life. Mm-hmm. I do believe it is, you know, through David, my character and Rachel's character, the short-sighted woman, I do believe that their quest is the pursuit of what love means to them individually as opposed to what it's been declared as through a system. Uh, yeah, which is the question, I won't spoil it, but there is... There's a question that's left hanging at the end, in a way, is will your character do what society says you have to do to become a a couple or not? Um, Yes. I have to bring this up, even though it's something that many actors have done. You gained weight for this role. But Mm -hmm. I wanted to bring it up because of something that you said about it, which was that it helped you in the role because it made you sad. Tell me about that. I experience. did. I just, I think it was partly just the amount of sugar I had in my body, you know, sugar. <laughs> I mean, you, <laughs> crash. as much as it kind of rises you to the mountain peak, it just tears you back down into the valley shortly thereafter. But in the film, it was so unusual and was such a departure, I think, for most of us that it really helped me just to physically be able to step aside from the space I was used to inhabiting as a man and moving in a particular way and and I, and also it was it was a costume that wouldn't come off mm-hmm. I literally was that size purely for David so even if we'd wrap a day's work and I'd he go back to my room I was still David. I was still stuck with David yeah absolutely like in what felt like a million miles away from any way that I'd known my body before you know um, we have two questions that we ask everyone on the show sure. and the first one if we were to meet you at a dinner party, what question would you least like to be asked? Why are you so quiet tonight? <laughs> are you usually quiet? Is that why? No, but it's, it's one of those, I just remember if you ever had it, you're sitting around a dinner table and maybe you're, maybe you're uncomfortable or maybe you're just a bit down or tired or something, or maybe you're not, maybe you're okay in your silence, but you're, you're a little bit more quiet maybe than you usually are and somebody shouts across the table, you're, you're quiet tonight, what's wrong? You know, that kind of thing. <laughs> yeah, because what yeah. good can come of that question? It's kind of What like good it. can come of it? Like, honest to God, if you really care, come over and whisper it in my ear. <laughs> uh, here's our second question. Tell us something we don't know. And this can be about anything, yourself or the, the world at large. Something you don't know? Yeah. I don't know, man. What do you not know? Can I ask you that or is that ridiculous? What do you not know? <laughs> not much. So I'm things. a public radio yeah. host, so I'm extremely well-read and knowledgeable about things. Well, here's, a, <laughs> here, here's something I didn't know when I was reading up about you. 
you supported a number of charities, the Special Olympics, an anti-bullying campaign in Ireland, but also something yeah. called the Homeless World Cup, which I yeah, never the Homeless of. World Cup is exactly what it sounds like. It's a soccer tournament, a football tournament that takes place once a year in in whatever the particular city is. That year, two years ago, it was Santiago, Chile. Last year, it was Amsterdam. Yeah, and homeless people getting together and finding through football a sense of community that they obviously don't experience in their day-to-day lives. Like, what kind of results have you seen coming out of that? I mean, obviously... Well, it's, ama- it's amazing. I mean, it's really helping people get their lives together. There are now outreach programs that are helping people, you know, get off methadone and, and helping people be reintroduced to the workforce. And, uh, of course, being an actor, I'm trying to emotionally and financially capitalise on that by making a film about it. <laughs> but, um, oh, really? But the, There's yeah, a Homeless World Cup yeah, film yeah. coming up? Yeah, and it's one of the few times where maybe, and I just say maybe, and I'm not saying this is an act of altruism, but maybe film kind of promotes some greater social awareness. Colin Farrell, uh, no word on when his Homeless World Cup film might come out, but you can see him right now in the mind-bending black comedy The Lobster. If you can handle some troubling scenes of violence, I highly recommend it. Again, not a film for a romantic evening. Stick with flowers. Please. And hey, for more movie recommendations from us, life advice, what have you, follow us on Facebook and post away. All right, and speaking of social media, here comes our chat with writer Lindy West. She got her start as a film critic at Seattle's alt-weekly The Stranger, but she soon found her voice speaking out on topics like racism, sexism, and fat-shaming. Her deafness in using all things internet earned her the Women's Media Center Social Media Award. Wes' first book came out this week. It's a funny and pointed memoir called Shrill, Notes from a Loud Woman. In it, she talks about growing up big in a body-obsessed culture. In one especially funny chapter, she talks about her lack of big female role models as a child. Hmm. When we met, I asked her to list the few that did exist. Mrs. Potts from from Beauty and the Beast. She's a teapot. Yeah. She's a teapot with a hat <laughs> who talks. And then at the end, spoiler, sorry for people who haven't seen Beauty and the Beast. She transforms into the world's oldest woman. Uh-huh. And then there's, you know, there's Ursula. Ursula the Sea Witch from Little Mermaid, who's also a horrible monster. Yeah. Um, there is... Who else did I do? We have Miss Piggy, which oh, is Ms. probably the Piggy. one that comes to mind for a lot of people. Right. Miss Piggy is definitely the one that comes to mind. You had ambivalence about Miss Piggy, right? Yeah. Like a lot of fat women are like, yeah, Miss Piggy's my my idol. And then I started thinking about Miss Piggy and how she actually made me feel as a child. <laughs> and she made me feel really uncomfortable because she's really sexually aggressive <laughs> in a way that violates Kermie's boundaries. <laughs> and I just, and I, I mean, and that taught me things about myself, like what my options were. <laughs> You know, when I became an adult, yeah, like, okay, well, you can be a scary witch or a sexless grandmother or like a weird pig rapist. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) Sorry. I'm so sorry. No, it's okay. Those are words that we're allowed to say. (laughs) Oh, good. (laughs) Um, Those examples or the lack of examples you had as a child kind of talks about society's larger problem with. You use the word fat in your book, but like bigger people. Mm-hmm. Um, in many of your chapters, you kind of talk about the evolution of you gaining your confidence. Uh, and then it culminates in an incident at The Stranger, which is where you began writing, mm-hmm. which is the Alt Weekly in uh, Seattle, very yeah. progressive. The fantastic paper. Yes, helmed by Dan Savage, who is this pugilistic, progressive, LGBT rights uh, advice columnist. Can you kind of, in a nutshell, talk about what, hap- what went 
yeah. on Between You and Dan? Uh, so it was, around, I think it's like 2010, 2011. And at that time, uh, even more so than right now, it was just very fashionable to tell it like it is about fat people and how like, okay, fat, we need to quit making excuses for fat people and acknowledge mm. that they're just lazy and gross <laughs> and a drain on the healthcare system, et cetera, et cetera. And so Dan was on that train. The lens in which he was looking at it was health, right? Right. But, you know, as a fat person, you that reads differently. Yeah. You know, you making me feel dehumanized and this scourge that we need to have a national war on. Yeah. That doesn't make me feel like you care for my health because it's certainly not good for my mental health. And it's honestly not good for my physical health. If you are hammering into me that I'm something that needs to be eradicated, then I don't want to take good care of myself. Yeah. You know, so it was just like you know these posts about fat people that weren't like super hateful but just you know kind of snide and felt cruel to me so what i long story short what i did was i wrote a long very long post called hello i am fat um because that wasn't something that i had said out loud before it wasn't mm. some, it, it wasn't i didn't self identify as fat because what you're taught in our culture is that fat people aren't fat they're thin people who have failed and I, and I got really fixated on the idea that you know fat people exist now whether you want them to exist or not and we have to feel we have to figure out how to accommodate fat people yeah. uh and uh, yeah so <laughs> and the fallout was the fallout was that he was really mad <laughs> um the fallout was really fascinating actually you know it um, it sparked this huge discussion in the comments. Uh, there were a lot of fat readers who wrote to me and said, thank you so much. And then there were a lot of people saying horrible things about me, which is fine. I expected that. And um, and then Dan wrote a response that was kind of, I think it was written in a moment of high emotion because it was yeah. a really intense exchange. And Well, Dan didn't fire you. Yeah, no. Kept your job with a stranger. Mm -hmm. uh, and I feel like that post uh, kind of set you on the path of being a writer who focuses more on social justice issues. Yeah. Um, after The Stranger, you went to Jezebel, a blog that caters to women readers. And there you got in another high profile dust up, this time with the comedian Daniel Tosh, who you took to task for saying rape jokes were always OK. And it became another big Internet to do. Yeah, I started I just started writing about race and gender and oppression. And I had always been interested in comedy. I mean, I'd always been obsessed with comedy. Yeah. And so uh, the, when there was this big national conversation going on about rape and misogyny in comedy because of um, this incident with Daniel Tosh yelling about how rape is always funny, I, I wrote about it. And um, that kicked off you know, like a two-year cycle of <laughs> constant abuse from with, from trolls on the internet, yeah. and even, but even publicly, like with com comedians and this go mm -hmm. ongoing dialogue. And and you at one point you talk about you know I you loved comedy, you performed comedy. You write at one point, I wish I'd never got political about it because I had to give up my funny card. Mm -hmm. And that you can't you have trouble watching stand-up comedy. Yeah, w was it worth it? You know, honestly, I don't know. I think so. I think so. Um, but I mourn that a lot. You know, I, I used to identify as like a funny person and a humor writer. Yeah. And now I just get people still all the time, like male comedians, using my name as shorthand for this sort of humorless feminist anti-comedy, like this 
I don't know. This kind of wet blanket of, on, yeah, exactly. on, on humor. Yeah, exactly. I'm like the number one wet blanket, <laughs> yeah. which is simply not true. <laughs> yeah. How do, so for yourself then, you know, comedy is particularly charged because that this was, you know, ongoing thing where people are being saying horrible things to you. But for yourself, how do you draw the line for someone who wants to be a good human and, and, and become a better human and evolve, but still is coming home from work and was turning on Netflix and taking something in. Have you devised maybe a rule of thumb for yourself about what is acceptable and not acceptable? In terms of what I consume? Yeah. Or just guidelines. I mean, it's for... so hard because you can't, there's nothing that you can, <laughs> pretty much nothing that you can watch. That's not a problem. And yeah. I, you know, basically my rule of thumb is I- I'm going to watch you know, and read things that make me happy and that I find interesting, but make sure that I'm doing that with a critical eye and that I'm being also vocally critical about things that are, I think, harmful in the broader scope of society. And, you know, when you say, was it worth it? And I hesitated, that was purely selfish. Like, I I think that in a, you know, a a broader way, it was absolutely worth it. I think that that conversation really opened a lot of people's eyes to, the fact that it's possible to critique art forms that we love and yeah. and make them better and that um, I, I really think that it emboldened a lot of women in comedy to kind of band together and speak with, with one voice and change that culture. And so that's totally worth it. Um, progress. It's progress. <laughs> Yay, we did it. <laughs> Author Lindy West, her debut memoir, Shrill, Notes from a Loud Woman, is out now. All right, we're going to take a quick break, but coming up, rocker John Doe recalls the riotous birth of L.A. punk, and comedian Maria Bamford comes to terms with a career in showbiz. Which, she says, is a little fickle. You're the most beautiful. You're so pretty. Get away from me. When the Dinner Party Download continues. Welcome back to the Dinner Party Download, the show that helps you win your dinner parties. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. Thanks for being with us. Hello. In a few minutes, John Doe, frontman of the legendary band X, takes us from a poetry workshop to a punk rock riot. But first, the opposite of punk, manners. Yes. Each week, you send us your questions about how to behave, and here to answer them this time around is Maria Bamford. She is one of the comedy world's most beloved and original voices and is also, by the way, a master at using her voice. In her web series, The Maria Bamford Show, she played dozens of people in her own life, from her high school tormentors to her very Minnesotan parents. She is known for upending comedy standards, like by speaking pretty candidly about her struggles with anxiety and depression in the midst of a comedy set. Maria's new project is a candy-colored, hilariously absurd, kind of, sort of, semi-autobiographical series called Lady Dynamite. It just premiered on Netflix, and Maria, it's a joy to have you. Thank you so much for having me on this program, Rico. Thank you, and Brendan as well. And Brendan. Well, the thing is, is I can't can't see you. That's right, Brendan is in another studio today. But that doesn't mean that you're not there. It's just like God. But you can't, you could roll the den. Yeah, me and Brendan. Brendan. Or Or I could say it in a... In a oh, wait. more serious way. Oh, you could. Brendan. Oh, that was your public radio voice. That's a public yeah. radio voice. Why aren't you hosting this show? Well. That's our first question. <laughs> the thing, I'm not fundraising. That's, it's very difficult. I'm not very good at uh, getting people to give me money. 
Well, that's well, not, that's not true because you have this new show on Netflix. And we want to talk to you about it. Well, it's all through uh, when you're passively disinterested. You know what? It, have you had that experience where in show business or in life, whenever you want something, then nobody cares. But then <laughs> yeah. when you don't want it, then everyone's interested. Yeah. So you didn't look for the mm. show. It just well, appeared. Kind it's of? funny. Like, yeah, I wasn't feeling very well. I, you know, I'd just gotten over a breakdown, mental breakdown. And I was yes. like, somebody wants to buy me a salad and burnt one, I'll go. <laughs> and okay. Turns, and next thing Are we going to have another salad? Okay. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Suddenly you had a TV show. Well, it was kind of very surprising. You know, just because it, it, show business is like a, a friend with an alcohol problem. Um, you love her so much, but you just don't know what her mood's going to be from day to day. <laughs> You're the most beautiful. You're so pretty. You're just a getaway from me. Well, that's part yeah. of our question is you, you openly struggle with anxiety, and yet you're returning to show business, which seems like the last place someone would want to be who has an anxiety problem. And that's kind of what the show is about. Yes, it is about that. Because I... I I do have fantasies of becoming an administrative assistant at a nonprofit, as if that would solve things. <laughs> yeah, I've actually I've actually done that. I have been an administrative assistant, and it's just as anxiety provoking as show business. <laughs> yeah, but it's for eight hours. It's an eight hour show. <laughs> yeah, rather than show business, which is about a half hour a day. It's about a half hour a day. You oh, get wow. in, you get out. If it's a bad show, forget about it. They shoot it in real time. That's interesting. Yeah. I have no idea. <laughs> so in this series, um, one of the characters is your Minnesotan mom. Yes. You're known for doing this amazing impression of her. Yes. And in fact, in your web series, you portrayed her. Yes. But here you had to cast someone else to do it. Yes. So what were you looking for when casting that character? Like, what is what is the essence of your mom? Well, just... Somebody who felt warm and it was funny because Mary Kay Place is also Episcopalian. Yeah, she plays your mom. And also <laughs> has like a lot of energy like my mom. So they, they spent, when they first met, they spent about two hours together alone at Mary Kay Place's trailer, just chit-chatting, chit-chatting mm. about spirituality. And wow. um, Were you like jealous? Uh, not at all. <laughs> <laughs> That's nice. Uh, Maria, maybe you can bring some of your momly wisdom to our listeners' etiquette questions. Should I answer as my mother? <laughs> maybe she could chime she, in after she you. She can show up. What is your mother's first name in case she shows up? Her name is Marilyn Halverson <laughs> okay. Bamford. And, wow, that's very Episcopalian. Well, stuff. originally I was raised Methodist, which was with mm. the you know, little cups of grape juice passed around. But <laughs> then I became a, de- a deacon in the Episcopal Church, and I am a licensed marriage and family therapist, though I no longer practice. All right. But I, mm. I love to give advice. See? So there you go. Your mom is eminently qualified. We're going to ask this first question okay. to Maria, though. Yes, of course. And it comes from Andrew in Harrisville, Rhode Island. Andrew writes, Dear Maria, If you're a pug owner and a friend says they don't like pugs, how appropriate is it to not kick them out of your life? (laughs) I feel guilty having a friend who says they don't like pugs. Is holding a grudge and being passive-aggressive towards them a fair enough compromise? You're a big pug fan. Okay, 2004, I declared it the No Friend Left Behind act. (laughs) I say you let them have that experience of not liking pugs. You're not always going to be having your pug. There's some severe draconian NDA laws, no dog Mm. allowed, laws Mm. that are still enacted. So you're Mm going to have times when you're without your pug, and you're going to have your great friend who, Mm -hmm. yeah, it's 
about pugs. <laughs> so you're you're saying oh, you're offering pug hate amnesty. Yeah, just don't bring up the pug. Just like t- talk about things that you have a good time with. Do, do you go mm-hmm. to the Trina Turk outlet store and look at pants? Is that something you guys do together? Well, uh, Andrew's not here to respond, but I'll bet he does. What if you're with that friend and a pug walks by and and they say something mean about that pug? Okay, well that that's disrespectful. Maria, your face just turned yeah. on a dime. That okay. kind of you. I think then you can say how you feel. Say, hey, and of course you say I statements. When you diss pugs in my presence, I feel. Hurt. And that's uncomfortable. And that's what intimacy is built on is discomfort. <laughs> Rich intimacy. There you go, All Andrew. Right. Good luck. Good luck with that. So this next question comes from Sheel yeah. in St. Louis. Sheel. Yeah. S-H-E-E-L. It's a cool one. Beautiful. And the question is, what should you talk about with your hairdresser? Wow. Okay, well, this is what happens with me with hairdressers. And what I do is I switch hairdressers almost every month. (laughs) I cannot bear to tell them that I don't want to talk at all. Uh, I never want to talk. I just want to read my bookie book. I'm getting sleepy with all the chemicals. (laughs) And although I... I love this Netflix uh, product, Grace and Frankie. I don't know if I need to hear their interpretation at that time of of what's going to happen in the next season. Um, I just say keep switching hairdressers. Yeah. It's like switching shampoos, switching up your shampoos so you don't get a, m- too much buildup. Mm-hmm. You don't want to get too much buildup. Emotional buildup. Build I think that's a good answer for <laughs> Sheil, but um, what would your mom say? Well, I have a wonderful hairdresser, and his name's Jesse, and he lives half the year in Palm Springs, so I don't always see him, but I would just say, how are you? (laughs) Tell me what is going on in that incredible life of yours. He's a gay man, and he also teaches Pilates, and he is just fun. (laughs) Wow, we should have him on to do etiquette next (laughs) time. Or your mom. How about both of them? She, yeah. Oh, my God. My mom is a delight. Really? I, I, I want it to be a slow bleed into my mother. That's I'm, I have the suit. If I, I just have to put on about 20, 30 more pounds, which would be very easy. Because she's, mm-hmm. she's such a happy lady. She enjoys things so much. Look at the... Oh, gosh. I was just down at the liquor store at the end of your block. And he was a darling guy. Sing. He's Punjabi. And he had these beautiful blue eyes. It was like, we t- I talked to him about, we went to Turkey, and we. I just told him about our trip, and we just laughed. We just laughed. <laughs> there you go, Sheil. You can either uh, chat up your hairdresser like that or change your hairdresser monthly. Mm. Here is something from Anonymous in Brooklyn, New York, and he asks, how do you reveal your mental illness to a potential boyfriend or girlfriend? Well, I prefer to just uh, have it available on iTunes. Uh, I mean, everybody, we all Google each other as soon as you start dating. I mean, I think it seems like by the sixth date, people seem to have, if they have some web presence, they've looked it up. Yeah, right? yeah, right, right. So, um, so you're saying just make that part of your web presence so they find it on could, their own. You could make it a part of your web presence. Or I would say the third date is not a bad time mm-hmm. to bring out... Your medications necklace. 
you know, that has engraved on it uh, your full prescription. And then you wow. say, or I don't know, you, you just bring it up because I think it is important for people to know that's because some people are not on board. I had a gentleman who I dated for two months and he knew that I had those issues, but I think he knew about them in sort of a way of uh, like uh, they were... <laughs> They were like adorable, well written, or yeah, yeah, part (laughs) of your character. You're just a great actor. Yeah, yeah. But when I actually said, "Oh gosh, yeah, I think I'm having a mood problem right now. I'm going to go see my psychiatrist," he was like, "Oh God, oh is this a thing? Oh no!" And um, reality. So I think it's it's good to say a date three. Okay. Let him bow out early, Um, because everybody's got something, and I say. If you have somebody who tells you what their stuff is uh, by the mm. second or third date, like knows what their deal is, that's amazing. Oh, right. You Instead know? of you having yeah. to excavate it over the course of years oh, or something. Oh, my Lord. Or just you're with someone who's actually has self-knowledge. Yeah, and says, oh, here are the things about me that are not the greatest. You know, like one of the things that was so romantic to me, but my, hus- my husband um, shared with me exactly how much debt he had. He wow. sh- shared his credit report. And I was like, I was so relieved that he knew what that was. <laughs> sure. Like so many people are completely in the dark about it. Just somebody who's clear on what's going on. That's a relief to me. Yeah. By the way, what date was that that he brought out the credit report? Uh, I think that was three months in. It was the honeymoon. <laughs> yeah. 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 Which I, because I, I, I love that kind of stuff. I, I listen to Marketplace. I think he could sense that in you. Yeah. He's like, this is a lady that's going to appreciate it. Yeah. I do my own bookkeeping and I've been audited by the IRS. Guess what? They owed me 25 bucks. Kablam. Nice. Hello. That's because you listen to Marketplace. IR, hell yeah. Yes. <laughs> there you go. Thank you, Maria. Thanks, Maria, Thank for telling our audience how to behave. Thank you for having me. Maria Bamford, her very funny series Lady Dynamite debuted this week on Netflix. It's semi-autobiographical, but we're pretty sure there are not a lot of scenes of her doing her taxes. And folks, if you have an etiquette question you'd like answered by a famous person and or a famous person imitating their parent, you're in luck. Perfect. Our website is open 24 hours. Head to dinnerpartydownload.org and click contact. Time to eavesdrop. In the 1970s, John Doe, along with partners in crime Exine Cervenka, Billy Zoom, and DJ Bonebreak, formed X, which became one of the most important and enduring bands of the exploding L.A. punk scene. He writes about it in his new book, Under the Big Black Sun. Today we overhear him tell some shaggy dog tales about those early punk days. So I had run a poetry workshop in Baltimore, and I desperately wanted to get out of the East Coast because it was full of ghosts and people with negative attitudes. And I came out to California and I thought, well, the best way to get into the underground would be to go to a poetry workshop. So happens that Beyond Baroque, the largest small press library on the West Coast, was right down the street from me. People like Tom Waits and Charles Bukowski, uh, it was rumored, had been there. So I thought, perfect, I'll go. The first person I saw was this woman who had reddish-brown hair cut into a somewhat of an Egyptian wedge, which was popular then. She had on jeans that were so bleached there was nothing left of them, really. I thought, well, this person is the coolest person in the room. Maybe I'll go sit near her. It seemed like a great idea. 
So I went over there and sat down, and the first thing that they asked was for us to write down a list of ten poets that we liked. So I wrote down my names, and she had two people on hers, you know, Patti Smith and E.E. E. Cummings, and that was about it. And so she looked over at my paper and saw that I had filled it out, and so she said, who have you got on there? And this woman, Maxine, well, she cheated off my paper. And then she said, oh, by the way, you wrote down John Ashbery twice. I said, oops, thanks, I feel like an idiot. So the first thing that Exine and I did together was cheat. <laughs> she looked on my paper to crib. A few years later, Exine and I moved to West Hollywood. Exine had decorated the place mostly, and, and we had all these kind of voodoo dolls and the mantelpiece because we thought it might scare people away. They were going to rob the place. Of course, there was nothing to steal, maybe a guitar. And uh, for some reason, the landlady thought it'd be a great idea to put tinfoil all on the wall of the bathroom, which I don't know how she got it to stick there. It stuck great, but it looked like hell. We had uh, any number of people that would come and go party in, in this small 400-square-foot duplex. One night, Exine and I retired, and Billy Zoom, the guitarist for X, had been sleeping on our couch for probably three or four months. And our friend Chuck Barron, who was our roadie, evidently he fell asleep in the chair, and evidently he was smoking when he did. So Exine and I are sleeping, and I smell smoke. So I run out of this tiny bedroom, and I look out, and Billy's yelling, and Chuck's yelling, and it's like, what the hell? He had set this beautiful 1940s green chair on fire. It was smoking all to hell, and he had set his beloved motorcycle jacket afire as well, which he's wearing. So I took it upon myself to just clear him out of the way, and I grabbed the chair, and I think I had underwear on. Picked it up through the door, and I kind of tossed it onto the curb and dusted my hands off, and I thought, well, I've taken care of that. So Exine and I went back to sleep, and we thought the episode was over. The next thing we know, this damn fire truck's pulling up, and its bells ringing, and its sirens going. Ding, 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 ding. We're just jumping out of bed all over again, and they're blasting this poor, sad, beautiful 1940s chair with their fire hose putting out the fire like real firemen. It was a fun time. So as time went on, punk rock got a little more popular in Los Angeles, and so everybody got together, and it was going to be a big punk rock show held at this place down in MacArthur Park called uh, the Elks Lodge. Beautiful old building. There was a staircase that was probably 50 stairs covered in red carpet and chandeliers, and it starts off... Plugs played, and maybe the Alley Cats played, and the Go-Go's. And we're set to play towards the end. Everybody's having a good time. There's, holy moly, there's six, seven hundred people showed up. And everybody's lolling around on those stairs, a bunch of good-looking punk rockers. The boys are wearing cut-off T-shirts, and the girls are wearing slips for dresses. And I'm getting ready to play, and it's getting kind of nervous, and it's almost about time. And then I hear there's some commotion downstairs. I look out the door, and here's about 50-plus cops in riot gear with their billy clubs out, just wading into that group of kids. And they're just smacking them left and right. Pow, pow, pow. And I thought, holy crap, 
I better get out of here. So I closed that little door tight and ran back up the stairs and said, hey, folks, take a look out the window. And luckily there was a window right there. So we all looked out the window and there's cop cars everywhere. We had no way out. We were trapped. Half hour goes by and an hour goes by and an hour and a half goes by. Helicopters flying around. A lot of people got stitches. A lot of people got whacked around by the police. Later on, they called it the St. Patrick Day punk rock riot, and people were talking about police brutality. Go figure. So we stayed up in that dressing room till 4 o'clock in the morning. And I remember Exine and I sneaking out there. We got into my 1956 Ford and drove back to that little apartment. I think we got into bed and the sun was just coming up. Writer, actor, and punk legend John Doe. His new book is called Under the Big Black Sun, A Personal History of L.A. Punk. Folks, we are sad to say that's the dinner party download for this week, Mm -hmm. but hold your heads high because more dinner parties exist on our podcast feed. And that's where you can not only find past episodes featuring guests from Amy Schumer to Kurt Weill, but you'll also hear podcast-only tidbits. For example, right now, you'll find our annual All Icebreakers show, which is a compendium of wonderfully awful jokes told by the likes of Anderson Cooper, Cameron Diaz, and more. Find us on iTunes or your favorite podcast app and hit subscribe. And this is no joke. Our show would not be possible without the help of producer Jackson Musker, our associate producer Nina Patak, and our associate digital producer Christina Lopez. Bill Lance and Jeff Peters engineered this week. Our interns are Danny Carmichael and Christian Coons. That's it, everybody. Have a wonderful week. Bon appétit.